Hi there, and welcome to the show. I'm Frank Nielsen. I work as a mental trainer. And in this episode, I want to talk to the best guy out there to share the knowledge of how we can be become a better negotiator. I found Chris because I read the book Never Split a Difference. After I have read the book, I knew I had to speak to Chris and share uh, some of his knowledge with you. So Chris is a 24-year veteran of the FBI. Chris is one of the best negotiators in the world. As the FBI's former leading international hostage negotiator, he has been face-to-face with numbers of criminals, including bank robbers and terrorists. He is also the founder of the Black Swan Group, a consulting firm that provides trading advices for Fortune 500 companies through complex negotiations. Was has taught uh, at a lot of business schools, including uh, Harvard University and MIT's School of Management. Uh, in this episode, we talk about the reason why the word yes can destroy your deal, important characteristics of a good negotiator, how to get your dream house, why you should not use the word why, which are the three different personalities you can meet in a negotiation, Ross's favorite techniques, and lots more. As you can hear, I'm Norwegian, and my English isn't the best. But as in this episode, as all the episodes, it's the guest that is speaking the most, so bear with me on my English. Uh, if you want to find uh, more episodes, you can find it at Mental Training Podcasten if you're Norwegian, and if you're international, you can find the Mind Coaching Podcast. Both are on iTunes. If you liked the episode, please give it a five star on iTunes. There's just one thing to say: enjoy today's episode with Chris Was. Uh, welcome you to the show, Chris. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Oh, and thank you for taking the time, Chris. But uh, before we head into your poll for techniques and knowledge as a hostage negotiator, uh, what led you to start working for the FBI, Chris? Um, you know, it was kind of an accident, actually. I was, uh, I was a police officer, and uh, my father wanted me to think about federal law enforcement because he thought it was a better job. Um, and I'm not sure that that's entirely true. Because being a local police officer is a great job also. But uh, I, I took a look at it, and I saw it was the opportunity to really uh, pretty much go all over the world. So it was an adventure. I had a great time doing it. But uh, most of us want to avoid confrontations, I think, Chris. Uh, what kind of abilities do you think you possess to be as good as uh, as you have been the last 24 years uh, working for the FBI? So you must have been good at what you were doing. Yeah, you know, actually some uh, some really basic stuff, I think. Uh, um, uh, willingness to learn, openness to learning, um, initiative, hard work. I mean, I, I mean, it sounds really um, cliche almost, but I think the other thing was I always tried to work with hard, people who worked really hard and also had a lot of fun. Uh, the people I worked with, especially when I was in New York and I was there for 14 years. I mean, we had a ball. We, we used to laugh and joke around all the time. We joked around so much at work that one time we had a secretary who got transferred to our squad um, who had high blood pressure before she came to work with us. And we had her laughing so much that after she'd been there about four months, she actually came up to me and told me that her blood pressure had dropped dramatically because she was having <laughs> so much fun at work. So, we, you know, we had a ball. I mean, uh, but, you know, but, we joked around a lot. We worked, we worked really hard. But how is that possible when you're... Uh... You're a negotiator. So uh, in a lot of these uh, situations, I presume there is hostages involved. Uh, right, right. Uh, so how do you keep yourself calm and uh, keeping your mood up? Well, you know, it, then, then you start to really enjoy the work. Uh, you really enjoy doing well. You enjoy helping each other out. Um, you know, you, and also I, we always worked as a team. You know, there's an old saying, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. That's true. And, uh, you know, when you got a lot of people working together, they, they become a good team and they really help each other out a lot. Uh, so you do not think you have some special abilities that make you a better negotiator and uh, other people don't uh, like confrontations? No, I, I think, um, you know, uh, the, I think the special ability is, is it's actually is a trait called openness and how open are you to learning new things? Mm. I mean, it can be just as simple as, you know, one test for openness is what is your choice of Internet browser on your laptop or on your phone? Okay. 
Um, and it's and I did I did an experiment uh, myself once. Uh, Adam Grant wrote a, a great book called Originals, which is kind of like what are the people who are truly original? What do they have in common? And the first thing he's uh, identified was his characteristic of openness. So um, the question is like, for example, if have you got Google or have you got the Chrome browser? Have you got Firefox on your phone, on your laptop, on your computer? Anything other than the default device. And so I thought this is kind of interesting. You know, I'll, let me run an experiment. So uh, at the class I teach, uh, I teach business negotiation um, at the University of Southern California's master's program, MBA program. I sent out an email to all the students in my class, 54 students, small sample size. What what's your browser on your devices, you know, on your on your laptop, on your phone? What's your browser? Now, what I got back was um, not a number of my high performers. A couple of the really good students still had the default browser. And that's going to be if uh, it's either going to be Microsoft, uh, Internet Explorer, the default browser, or it's going to be Safari, which is if you got an Apple product. So some of the top producers still took the default browser. But every single one of my poor performers, every one of them, took the default browser. They, they didn't bother to put Google Chrome or Firefox. So, you know, right. it's, it's an indicator. Mm. If, if you're an original, do you find new ways of doing things mm. because it works better for you? So adaptability then. You need to adapt. Uh, yeah, 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 and be comfortable with it. Mm. You know, yeah. yeah, be willing to make mistakes. Yeah, because uh, I presume when you're in a hostage negotiation uh, that uh, things can go uh, go uh, bad in a in a fast way. If uh, especially in the beginning, I presume uh, when you start working uh, as a negotiator, Chris, I presume you had some uh, some bad experiences. Well, you know, a, c- a couple things went bad. I mean. Um... It's impossible to be perfect. Hmm. And yeah, there's a, another phrase that came across uh, recently, which is, you know, be willing to get it wrong on the way to getting it right. Oh, true. You know, no, you know, there's an old American saying, which I'm sure it's a, a universal idea, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Hmm. Well, it, it wasn't just that single straw that did it. It was an accumulation of factors. Hmm. And so what you, you begin to look for is how are the factors accumulating? Hmm. Or how have they how have they turned a direction? Maybe it's not going the direction you want it to go. How do you pick that up and 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 steer it back? So hmm. it's always an accumulation. Usually at least three indicators at any given point in time, and you begin to look for clusters, and and then you know then you begin to anticipate and be willing to be willing to make mistakes is hmm. is, a, is another big thing. Uh, do you remember the most intense moment, Chris, you had in uh, your uh, year? Well. Today? Uh, at different times, I can remember uh, one of the cases I talk about in the book, um, which is a great case, and it, it turned out wonderfully, uh, the shilling kidnapping in in the Philippines. And it was uh, at the end of that case, our hostage walked away. Uh, and simply because the, we wore the other side out so much um, that we dissipated all their anger and they just became really disorganized. And, you know, he was sitting around in a swamp in a jungle. And he and they weren't watching him anymore. And, and he was sitting there one day, and he said to himself, "Why am I staying here?" And he just walked away. <laughs> but uh, about a, probably about two weeks prior to that, they were going to kill him. And they uh, they they put out a threat, and and the threat was very real. And I remember going to bed that night. You know, thirteen hour time difference between us and the Philippines. I remember going to bed that night thinking, you know, when I get up in the morning, Jeffrey's head could could clearly be separated from his shoulders. He might be in pieces when I get up in the morning. And I have a distinct memory of that, of what it felt like that night. Now, what we did in that case was we did a lot of great things. We had a great team. But we knew that the terrorists were vulnerable to the influence of Jeffrey's mom. As stupid as it sounds, you know, one thing... Um, my entire career is, you know, what aspects of human nature are true for everybody, whether they're a terrorist or whether they're your neighbor. And as dumb as it sounds, even terrorists have mothers. <laughs> and I've, you know, uh, yeah, it seems obvious, right? What does that mean? That means from from ISIS to 
uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS in the Middle East to Al-Qaeda terrorists in the south of the Philippines. They actually are still vulnerable to a mother's influence. And in this particular case in the south of the Philippines, we flew Jeffrey's mother to the Philippines because we'd seen that vulnerability earlier and we were we were waiting for the perfect time to play the card. We flew his mother to the Philippines. She she did a press junket. Terrorists love the media. They pay. That's why they're terrorists. You know, they want media attention. We put uh, Jeffrey's mother in the media and, and on the head of the group actually came and called in to a radio station that she was on and said, because Jeffrey's mother's here, I'm not going to kill her, kill him. Wow. Uh, and then two weeks later, he walked away. Wow. Uh, I'm, going, I'm going to ask you. Uh, I was I was thinking about asking this later, but I'm going to ask you now, Chris. Uh, you have a story in the book uh, about uh, the black swan uh, and uh, and the person that uh, killed his mother and went in the bank. Uh, William Griffin. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you elaborate on that story? And the black and the black swan. Yeah, and um, the you know the first time I was told this story, uh, I'm become trained as you know you you're an FBI hostage negotiator. Imagine what it's like. You're in the negotiation training. The very first day, they drill into your head over and over and over again. Never been a hostage killed on deadline in the United States. They, you know they tell you that. They teach you that. And the very second day, they tell you about the William Griffith case and William Griffith case. Sorry, <laughs> in Rochester, New York where William Griffith walked into a bank and said, if you don't come in and kill me by three o'clock, I'm going to kill a hostage. And, you know, we, everybody knew you don't have hostages killed on deadline. And it, so they didn't go in and kill him. And at three o'clock, he walked Margaret Moore to the front of the bank and killed her. Shot her with a shotgun, put two blasts in her back, blew her out the, through the front door. It was her 10-year-old son's birthday that day. And then he walked over to a window and he stood silent, stood still. The sniper said, I put the crosshairs on his forehead and I dropped him. William Griffith stood there and waited for it to happen. And the, the big lesson of that was, you know, listen to what people are really saying and un listen to the into the depth. Listen between the lines, compare it with. What's going on It's called contextual intelligence. You know, it's an aspect of emotional intelligence. You know, what doesn't line up here? But they didn't realize uh, among the many things that didn't line up there that because they weren't, you know, they, they had rules, if you would, and the rules they weren't prepared to adapt. He never asked to escape. He, he said, give me a car. Instead of saying, give me a car by three or I'll kill a hostage. He said, you know, uh, come in and kill me by three or I'll kill a hostage. You know, that's a vision of the future. In, in any negotiation, start trying to figure out what the other person, how they see the future, because where this is going in the future dictates every negotiation. Mm. You know, do, and are we friends in the future? Um, do we prosper together in the future? Do I go to heaven in the future? You know, what's their religion? Um, the, the, what the future looks like is, are, is the controlling factor in every negotiation. And that's that's when instead of fighting about what's going on right now, mm. the real issue in our discussion is where's this going? Mm. And then you can you can make people doing crazy things by painting a different future, which is what religion is all about. Imagine imagine what people do over religion, mm. you know, in the name of their religion, because of where it's taking them in the future. If it's uh, you know it's paradise, you'll do anything mm. if it saves your soul. And it's not just con it's every single religion is like that. And and one of the points that I make in the book, forgive me, <laughs> you know, find out what the other side's religion mm. is. What you know, where are the actions they're taking now? Mm. Where are the decisions taking them? And then you get a real clear picture on what people are going to do. You also talk about three different personality types in the book, uh, Chris. Right. You know, there are Norwegians and there are Americans and there are Latin. <laughs> uh, you never know what they're going to do. Those people are crazy. They're, they're blonde and they're tall and they run around in the ice and the snow in a swimming suit. And good Lord, they're crazy. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate on the three different personality types. 
Yeah, well, and, and this gets back to the, the universal nature of human beings. You know, you hear a lot of psychologists talk about the caveman brain or, you know, some people will say, you know, there's a portion of the brain called the amygdala and they call it the amygdala hijack. All right, so we, all of us have got some wiring in our brain left over from the caveman days. You know, it's, really, it's where our emotions are housed. It's called the limbic system. And no matter how, what our education level is, no matter what our gender is, no matter what our ethnicity is, you know, we got this same wiring. Everybody's got a limbic system. I was with some psychologists in Hong Kong not that long ago, and they said, Aha. the psychologist said, well, you know, I've, I've listened to hostage negotiators who say you can't negotiate with terrorists. And I, and, I, and I knew I had them because they know the limbic system. So I said, how many terrorists don't have limbic systems? <laughs> and the room went dead silent. <laughs> so I said, you know, that's my way in. So what's in the limbic system? Why am I bothering talking about this? In caveman days, caveman's walking down the, uh, you know, the path in the jungle, wherever the caveman is, or in the mountains of Norway, wherever he's at. And he sees a threat. And he act, reacts one of three ways. Do I fight it? Do I run from it? Do I make friends with it? Fight, flight, or make friends? Um, those are the three responses. And every caveman is wired to do that. These are the three negotiator types. The assertive, you know, they see a challenge, want to take it on head on. The analyst, also known as the avoider, but m far more analytical, sees the challenge and says, let me figure this out before I make another move. You know, what are all the different possibilities here? Do I hide behind a tree? Do I take another path? Do I set a trap? Do I back up? You know, the analyst thinks through all the possibilities. The accommodator, the friend-oriented people, sees a threat. You know, is this an ally? Can I, can I make friends with it? You know, can I make it part of my team? You know, do I, is, uh, do I make, make it a pet? You know, what is it? Do I mate with it? What is it? You know, how do I, how do I make friends with this? Those are the three basic responses. You know, that's carried through to all of us through the from the caveman days. And so in any given negotiation, you know, what are you going to want to do? Are you going to want to attack the problem? Are you going to want to analyze the problem? Are you going to want to try to make friends with the problem? Hmm. And, and, and that we've seen that worldwide because uh, there's actually a psychological test that you can give that shakes it out in about 10, 15, 20 minutes. We give people this test from China to Germany, to Colombia, South America, mm. I've seen the world break pretty much up into those three types fairly evenly. Mm. Wherever we go, you know, around the world, Middle East to Africa, to Asia. And, the, and, if, and I, I know you keep trying to get a word in as way. Last point is, you know, if this idea that my, my company has is true, then that means the two out of three people you encounter are going to be different than you are. And I believe that one. Uh, what is the common trait for different personality types, uh, Chris? Um, not so much a common trait, but you know, we then experimented with uh, of of our nine negotiation skills, and some of them are just normal conversation; they're, they're not complicated. But what do all three types like the most? You know, how do they want to be dealt with? The biggest thing is, is, you know, we're taught to gather information by asking questions. And one of our types does not like to be asked questions and hates even more answering questions. Okay. You know, the analytical type, if you ask an analyst a question, they're going to want to think through all the possible answers before they say anything. And what are the implications of the answer? Hmm. So you ask an analytical type of question. They're happy to answer in a week. <laughs> <laughs> so very bad in the interview then. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, we found out that one of our skills, which we call a label, where instead of asking an analyst a question, you might say to an analyst, because you want to know why they're saying what they're saying. And you might, uh, a normal question is, why are you saying that? What made you say that? What makes you think that? Analyst is going to back up right away. The, so what you do is you use a label and you say, seems like you've given this a lot of thought. And then the analyst is has. And so they're going to want to tell you all about it. 
And it's a great way to trigger them giving all this information. That same comment to the assertive, the attacking person, you can say to the assertive, seems like you've given us a lot of thought. And they're going to tell you. And so this label skill happens to be the most universally liked skill by all three types. Can I give uh, one, more, one uh, more example of labeling? Because I, that I found re- really interesting. Sure. Uh, do you have uh, one more example? All right. So um, if someone is uh, uh, arguing with you, you can say, it seems like there's something about this you just don't like. And they'll open up. And especially if they're arguing with you, a lot of people are happy to argue, but they're reluctant to say why, hmm. because there might be weakness in their reasoning. They might know that they're just, um, they don't have a lot of reasons for it. You know, uh, a, a classic example is if somebody says something isn't fair, you know, <laughs> a current president of the United States talks about stuff being unfair and every other tweet he puts out. <laughs> Well, what the person is really telling us when they say something's unfair is they don't like it, but they can't think of good reasons to argue with you. Because if they had good reasons, they'd come out and say, they'd say, this is the price is out of line with the market. They'd say, um, everything you've done in prior to now is in contradiction to this. You know, they give you reasons. Fair, which we refer to as the F word, is really a cover up for lack of reasoning. And so then um, you want to respond to a label since they're not going to have any reasons. They're all going to be emotional. And a current president of the United States, if nothing else, is emotional. You To get him to talk about it, talk it through, instead of fighting with you and arguing with you, you'd say, seems like you have a reason for saying that. Or it seems like there's nothing, there's something about this that you just don't like. Hmm. Uh, or it seems like you think this is unfair. You know, you're using a label to draw people out to get some recognition so you don't sound like you're arguing. You sound like you really want to know. And and in in reality, you do, because how do you negotiate unless you really know where the other side's coming from? Mm. And so that's another that's another example of using a label um, when people are arguing. Uh, But you also talk about uh, calibrated questions. Calibrated questions. Yeah. And we you know, we chose that term because. Everything you say, particularly questions, are going to have an emotional impact on the other side. Everything you say. Uh, And so why not recognize that and then calibrate it as a result? An example of a a calibrated question to be used rarely but occasionally used is why. Hmm. The word why always makes people defensive. Hmm. Always. So... If you want, if you really want to know why, you shouldn't ask why, because it's going to make somebody defensive. You know, why did, why did you, why did you do that? Is an accusation. You know, I, uh, <laughs> I was talking to a group of people the other day. This guy had a, uh, actually a great shirt on. It was this, it, it was a really good looking shirt. And I said, I said to him, why did you wear that shirt today? And I could tell that he felt like there was something wrong with his shirt. He <laughs> pulled around with it. <laughs> and so then I said, now. What if I'd have said to you, what made you pick that shirt today? And I said, that felt differently, didn't it? And, and immediately he was like, yeah, you know, um, he was re- he was ready to answer. And, and at that point in time, he said, yeah, well, actually, my wife gave me this shirt. She was sitting right next to him. <laughs> and he said, I never wear it. I wore it today just to prove to her that I appreciated the shirt. <laughs> and she started to laugh and, you know, she enjoyed it, too. But so the. Why uh, has a, an impact uh, as a word, you know, calibrate that. What has an impact as a word? What seems very non-threatening? So you can change your why's to what made you do that. You know, uh, that takes a responsibility for an action. It makes people, people react. And here's another one that, uh, that actually blows people away, though. If I ask you a question where the answer is yes, would you like to make more money? You know, would you like to have a better life? The typical salesperson's question. Um, uh, would Would you like to do this? Yes, actually, uh, is commitment. And commitment creates anxiety. 
And every time you try to ask somebody the word to say yes to you, they become worried about what they're letting themselves in for. Actually, oh, had uh, I, let's go back to the shirt thing. Huh? Uh, I, you know, I had a shirt that I was thinking about getting rid of. And so I wore it one day because I wanted my girlfriend to react to it. And, you know, I had it when I went to pick her up. She said, wow, I really like that shirt. So I, I said to myself, oh, OK, well, I guess I'm not throwing this out. She likes it. <laughs> so you know, late, later that night, I, I said to her again, I said, so you like this shirt, right? And she literally says to me, if I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? Ooh. That's what people say to themselves every time you try to get them to say yes. What happens when someone's saying that to themselves? They get distracted. They mm. stop listening. True. They start thinking about all sorts of other things. It makes them anxious. Mm. Yet, yes is a question. That cre- it's another question. It creates certain emotions. So then uh, the, the thing that we have a great time with, that we gain the upper hand all the time, well, uh, if yes creates anxiety, what happens when somebody says no? They feel protected. And if, when people feel protected, they relax. And when they relax, they listen. So you want to know then? Yeah, all the time, all day long. For example, nobody in my company will ever call you on the phone and say, have you got a few minutes to talk? Because what's the answer I'm looking for is yes. Yes creates anxiety. How long is a few minutes? What do you want to talk about? If I agree to talk, um, does that mean I have to talk about what you want to talk about? These are all the anxiety-producing questions people ask themselves. So instead, every single time we call somebody on the phone, we say, is now a bad time to talk? Well, no, no, it's never a bad time to talk. <laughs> wow. Never saw so, that coming, Chris. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's it's a recognition. I, as a hostage negotiator, have had a chance to test drive emotional reactions on all kinds of communications in every culture on the planet. And we pulled it all together, and then we're helping people uh, move their lives forward with what we learned. Wow. Because in every sales book, it's the same. Does this, is this a good time to talk Or do you have the time? Yeah. I mean, uh, right, right. And yeah, yeah. I, I never knew that one. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? You know, it, I, it's uh, extremely it, interesting. It, yeah. Uh, before you start a negotiation, Chris, I presume there is hostages involved. I presume your outcome is to get the hostages free. But in a business negotiation, do you set yourself clear goals before you start a negotiation, and do you change this goal? Uh, under the negotiation? Yeah, well, great question, because um, what that boils down to is what does goal setting do to you? Goal setting uh, both elevates your performance and handicaps you. How does it elevate you? It only elevates you if you set a high goal, because now you're going to work harder. And not everybody sets a high goal. You know, the, the a great... Um, concept that my brothers and sisters at Harvard came up with is called BATNA, Best Alternative to Negotiated Agreement. You know, what happens if we don't make a deal? Hmm. This is intellectually a very sound concept, emotionally a bad concept, because many people in BATNA, when they understand their best alternative, that becomes their goal. And they underperform because they they give themselves a very low goal to, goal to accomplish, at which point in time they're willing to quit. Hmm. And that's the handicap. There's actually a secondary handicap. You should set a high goal, but then what happens if something better comes along? You're so focused on your goal, you miss it. Uh, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. So how do we how do we blend these ideas? You set a high goal and then say, I can do better than this. One of my goals is, by the end of this conversation, I need to I need to learn three new things. Information that they didn't tell me about or that I could never have found, or even more importantly, what they think of that information. If I think I got leverage, what do they think of my leverage? If if they think my leverage is useless, is that is does it then become useless? Absolutely. Leverage is like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder. Hmm. So I gotta I gotta find out relevant facts, and even more important, I gotta find out how they feel about those relevant facts and then i can make a deal 
One thing I'm extremely curious about, Chris, is that uh, when they go into a negotiation, let's say you want to buy your dream house. Right. And you do not want to lose that dream house. You want to buy it. Right. And then the emotional invested. And you have a fear of losing it. Then, right. Then I presume you're a bad negotiator. <laughs> well, maybe you've taken yourself hostage. Um, and then also, you know, ev- everything that you think makes you weak might actually be a reason to make a deal. So you found your dream house. How does this help me make a better deal? Let the other side get to know you as a person. And I got a friend of mine here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a very hot real estate market. Very few houses sell for the asking price. Unless there's something seriously wrong with the house, they all sell for more than the asking price. What do I, uh, what's a hostage negotiation technique I could use? Well, I know that if, uh, if, the, if the terrorist knows my first name, they're going to deal with me in a different way than if they don't know my name. Okay. I know if a terrorist knows the hostage's first name, they're less likely to harm them. In a business deal, it's a lot easier for the other person to turn you down when they don't know anything about you. Hmm. My friend made an offer on a house. He sent a letter to the seller explaining his hopes and dreams for the house. You know, my fiance and I want to buy this house. You know, we hope to have a family here. We hope, we hope, to, we hope to raise a family here. We hope to create our future. We want to create the same memories in this house that you had. We hope you had positive memories here. We want to cherish this place as much as you did. They also sent in a picture of uh, themselves to the seller. The seller made an agreement with them and turned down other higher (laughs) offers because nobody else that made the offer had a face. There were no pictures. Nobody else talked about their hopes and dreams for the house. And it was easy for them to turn the other people down because they didn't know who they were. They were just, a, it was just a name. It was just a signature on a contract. So you can, you can take your vulnerabilities and make them into advantages if you know how to just reframe it emotionally for the other side. Wow. So it's all about playing on the emotional side. But let's say I was in a negotiation with your kind of personality type, Chris, because I think you're an assertive type. I'm assertive, yeah. yeah. I'm assertive. Uh, uh, I'm like, I'm. Uh, I like to get agree, an agreeable. Uh, what's what's that? The personality type. Uh, uh, com- uh friendship oriented is a, an accommodator. Yeah. Uh, so, what is my best strategy to uh, to do a best deal with you, Chris? Your personality type. What? All right. So, at the end of the day, you know, there's elements from every personality that make a great negotiator. You know, there is no one type that's best. So you've got one of the easier things to start off with. You know, I've seen some data that indicates that you're six times more likely to make a deal with somebody that you like. The the relationship-oriented personality type, natural born, make deals because people like dealing with them. Uh, so your, your, your desire to have a great relationship with me is actually going to give you a very significant advantage in making deals because I'm going to like dealing with you and I'm going to want to keep dealing with you because I like it. You know, there's a phrase that we say, the last impression is the lasting impression. You're always going to try to end our conversation positively. Hmm. You're not going to be happy unless you do. That actually gives you a great tactical advantage. So your likability in dealing with an assertive is a big advantage. What you, the vulnerability aspect of that is that in order to maintain the relationship, if you're desperate to, you'll let yourself get pushed pretty far. Mm. That's the problem. Uh, and, and, and so then just understanding at the end of the day, for you, the second range of thought is, if you get pushed too far, you're going to make a deal that's actually bad for both of us. Because if it's bad for you, on some level, it's going to be bad for me long term. Mm. And, so, and, and some people uh, have trouble seeing the second phase of that, but you, in order to protect me, you actually have to not let yourself get pushed around. Because then it, I, I talked earlier about the future. Hmm. What's the future position? You can't stay in a relationship with me if you let me push you around all the time. Hmm. And as soon as you realize the future looks bad for both of us by being too agreeable, 
you'll be more careful because now you're protecting the future relationship as well as the present relationship. Hmm. Not true. Uh, but it can be a different kind of personality types in different kind of settings. You, yeah, you, you have a basic default type, okay. but some people, <clears throat> excuse me, some people are also adaptable. They learn to be adaptable. Hmm. And we often, we see a lot of times um, that gets back to the openness trait. Hmm. And I've seen people who are very anal- analytical in business negotiations and very accommodating in personal negotiations. And they'll flip almost immediately. Hmm. I'm not sure which one they started out with, but they, they came to learn that they needed to add to their skills. Hmm. And based on a context, I mentioned earlier contextual intelligence. Hmm. All right, so the context here, I need to be friendlier. Context here, I need to be more analytical. Hmm. Context here, I need to be more assertive. Um, it's almost like, uh, you know, there's a, are you an introvert or an extrovert? And some people say, well, there's a thing called an omnivert, which is dependent upon the circumstances, which one I am. Hmm. And I think that gets back to the openness trait and your ability to adapt. Hmm. Uh, what is your most powerful technique to build rapport as fast as possible, uh, Chris? Um, to start out with some sort of a label right off the bat that demonstrates understanding. And that'll be, you know, if somebody expresses themselves to me, I'll say, you know, it seems like, and then I'll, uh, you know, designate whatever they said that was important in the middle of it. Hmm. I'll recognize what was important. You know, it seems to me like it's really important for you to have a long-term relationship. Hmm. You know, I'll, I'll make an, an observation that indicates that I actually, <laughs> that I actually listened to what they said. Hmm. And, uh, and like universally, once someone is actually listened to, they'll talk some more. Every, it's a, it's a human nature desire to be understood. Hmm. Even, you know, they, they say there's, um, high context and low context cultures. And as I recall, the, the high context are quote, the Asians because they say very little. So you have to understand context. Well, they're still human beings. And they still want to be understood. And what they are is they're really testing you. They're going to reveal very little until you begin to listen. Hmm. Because they're not going to bother if you're not going to listen. And it's it's not confined to the Asian culture. It's actually a personality trait hmm. that has manifested itself in more or less ways in different cultures, depending upon what circumstances they face. But they're still human beings. They're high-context people. An analyst is a high-context human being. I'm not going to talk if I'm an analyst unless you're listening. And as soon as you start to listening, I'll open up more and more and more. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I've learned along along the way. Uh, what is the similarity principle, uh, Chris, and why is it important? Well, you know, similarity is uh, um, it, it can be easily misunderstood. You know, are we alike? Or then uh, how it's misunderstood is, are you like how I want to be? And the, so there's the, you know, what's a present, what's a future. And, and do I like you even if we're not alike? So similarity has to do with, you know, whether we share traits in common, it, it can be very powerful. It's a, the common ground issue and the two most and overall powerful uh, aspects of common ground are usually ethnicity and geography. You know, are we the same ethnicity or do we grow up in the same place? We could be vastly different ethnicity. You could be Chinese. I could be Latin. But if we both grew up in the same town in Norway, mm. we're going to feel really good around each mm. other because of our ge- geography similarity. So those two things can be really powerful. And some people rely on them because they find them to be so powerful. It's common ground. It can also be an addiction that limits you. And I don't like to be limited by anything in my negotiations. I pride myself in being able to negotiate well with people that I share no common ground with. Because actually the most important piece of common ground is that we're both human beings. And if I, and that's, that's sub-liking, it's subcultural. It crosses liking, it crosses boundaries, it crosses cultures. And when I wire into that, then I can, then I can deal with anybody. Uh, do you see a negotiation as a game, uh, Chris? 
Uh, I, you know, I don't, uh, not necessarily for me. I know some people do, you know, I, I look at it as collaboration, um, a, a great opportunity for us to do great stuff together. You know, I happen to particularly like, if you don't see it as collaboration and I can convert you to my way of thinking, <laughs> uh. um, and then maybe, maybe to me, it could, it could, is it a challenge for me? You know, I love challenge. Mm. I'm not sure that my word is game. For some people that, that say, well, what you're doing is describing a game. You know, they're descri- you're describing competition. You're trying to win. It's got to be a game. That just doesn't happen to be my word, but it might be for some. But let, let's say it's a business uh, negotiation. Uh, and from my, from my own experience, And the people listening that are going to negotiate me in the future, turn it, turn off. <laughs> Because right. uh, I can see that uh, uh, I can uh, have the people uh, in my um, thinking my way uh, all the way to the closing. But in the closing part, I'm losing them. And I'm not sure. Right. And I'm not sure why. Uh, and, I, and I think it's maybe has something to do with agreeableness that we talked about a little bit earlier. So, do you have any um, do you have any techniques or um, uh, or uh, something that you can share about uh, uh, closing? Yeah, the um, and that happens a lot. And I think one of the problems is you know there's been false agreement along the way. There's been too many yeses. Mm. Uh, There's been too many your rights instead of that's right. And, you know, uh, human beings are probably seduced more by your right than they are by yes. Mm, because of the ego. Not, uh, the ego. Absolutely. Mm. You know, we love to be told you're right. We love it. Love it. And it's it's one of the great uh, bizarre natures of human behavior because we love to be told you're right. But that's not the way we use it. We use your right to get people to leave us alone. We use your right to get people to stop talking. True. You know, uh, a husband <laughs> said your right to his wife all the time. <laughs> Probably the masters of your right. <laughs> For sure. You know, and, and then they're going to go back to the TV and watch what they were watching before. <laughs> Uh, you never help me out. You never appreciate, honey. You're right. Yeah. Spot on. So, <laughs> so uh, which is amazing. Why right? you know we all use it so much to get to get people to go away, and we all fall for it constantly. And in a business deal, that's probably what's happened. If you if you get towards the end, uh, and you're and you and you're if your gut instinct is picking up a problem and closing. You know, your gut instinct is your emotional intelligence. It's it, there's probably some good recognition going on there. Intuition is just recognition. You know, so the issue is, you know, how did I get here, or what do I do about it now? You know, at any given point in time, pulling a that's right out of the other person is instantly starts to fix things. Mm. Uh, it interests. It makes the fastest transitions in a positive direction faster than anything. I mean, stunning. You'll move, uh, uh, that's right from the other side, will move you through two to three phases in a negotiation nearly instantly. So if you're off track, the fastest way to getting back on track is take a timeout, try to get some that's rights. Mm. The that's rights will then are going to trigger some spontaneous utterances You know, as a FBI agent, I'd call it a spontaneous confession. Hmm. In a business deal, it's black swans. Suddenly start getting rare pieces of information as a black swan. Hmm. They suddenly get start getting thrown out on the table after the that's rights. Or if there's an emotional barrier, the other person just lets it go. Hmm. You said something in the beginning here. We're talking about... Um... Uh, and you're talking about uh, the psychologist, about uh, about the endocrine system, uh, and you said I had him. Uh, do you look for ways to get an um, to get an uh, oh, what's the word for it? Aha, um, uh, uh-huh. maybe yeah. an aha moment. Aha moment, and uh, and get this. Uh, not it's not overtake, but uh, uh, upper hand. 
Uh, yeah. It serves for upper hand upper on the other. Hand? No, I would never want to have <laughs> this. Why would I ever do that? <laughs> <laughs> but but is that something you're, you're, you're consciously searching for when you're in a conversation? Yeah, I think it probably is. I mean, I, I, uh, one of our uh, secret to gaining the upper hand in any negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. Mm. And I got to admit, I, I really want to feel like I have the upper hand. Mm. Um, I, I want to make a deal. Uh, I want you to want to continue to deal with me. Mm. I know you're a busy man, uh, Chris. Uh, I hope you have, have your time for this uh, last questions. Uh, you said something about uh, the illusion of control. How right. how do you give people the illusion of control? Well, um, usually it starts out with deference. You know, uh, when you're deferential to people, they feel in control. Um, and there are a lot of people that are that are they're not oriented uh, to actually making a deal. They're oriented to control. And so I know that if I make you feel in control. There's a really good chance I'm going to get the deal I, I want, you know, and, and again, it's it's very much like, you know, Don, uh, president of the United States, Donald Trump is a very control oriented guy. Hmm. I, I read his book a long time ago, you know, The Art of the Deal. And he even talks in his book about a guy who was extremely deferential uh, and the guy actually flooded him with details. Do you want this? Do you want this? Because. Mr. Trump is a control-oriented guy who was always telling this person what to do. So this guy said, well, the really easy way to get Mr. Trump off my back is to ask him everything. Overwhelm him with control. Make him feel completely in control. And finally, Trump sent him a letter back saying, stop bothering me with all these details and just do however you think you need to do. So what this guy did was he, he, you know, he overwhelmed Trump with the feeling of control, which caused you know, Donald Trump to, to, to let go. Mm. because he felt in in command. You, and you notice uh, when he was running for president of the United States, I saw a special that said that, uh, you know, Donald Trump likes to sign every check that goes out because he, he wants to feel like he's in control. Now, look at who's got influence with him these days. His son-in-law, Jared Kushner, makes him feel in control. Kushner never argues with him publicly. He never calls him out publicly. And Jared Kushner is quite firmly in a great position in the current White House. Look at another guy who doesn't argue with him publicly, who makes him feel like he's in control. Paul Ryan. Uh, a year ago, Paul, uh, Donald Trump said very few, uh, almost nothing good about Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan stays quiet, doesn't argue with him. He's very deferential, extremely deferential. And look at how well they're getting along. I think I think Paul Ryan has has given Mr. Trump the illusion of control and consequently is coming out far. Paul Ryan ran, even though they, they didn't get the health care thing through the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan led the way on that. So he's, he's, he's done very effectively by being deferential. There's, there's great power in deference. Has he had you as a consultant, Twist? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd take that work. Yeah, I'd be more than happy. We get higher. Uh, the last question, Chris. Uh, can you share three uh, th can you share three keys to closing a negotiation in a brilliant manner? Yeah, uh, the first key to closing is at the at the very end, make the other person feel it's okay to say no. Um, it's it's an, an autonomy issue, you know. And if people feel their right to no, say no has been taken away, they're more likely to refuse to cooperate. So if you feel like somebody's having some reluctance, say, look, you could back out of this at any time. You know, you have a choice here. If it's not good for you, don't do it. If you feel it's the wrong thing, if you feel like you've been coerced, if you feel like you weren't involved here, you know, don't do it. Invite people to say no. And that may be the last thing that they need. They, they need to feel like they weren't cornered. They need to feel like it was a voluntary decision. So uh, at a closing, say at, at any point in time, you know, maybe you see a different future here. You know, don't do this if you don't want it. You know, push the deal back across the table to them. Say here, you know, keep your money. Keep, keep the check. Uh, an extremely significant 
period of time, they're going to say, no, I want this. And that'll be the, what cements them into the deal. Now, if you push a contract back to the other side and say, don't do this now, and they hold on to it, you actually didn't plant a seed. There was a seed there that you needed to uncover. Because, what you know, yes is nothing without how. A deal is all implementation. You will run into implementation problems and they will be very expensive. So a great closing skill is, again, let people feel that it's okay to back out and they're more likely to comply. Give them a chance to talk, get a, be silent when you can be, and get a that's right out of them. And you put those three things together and you're going to be able to close really powerfully. Mm. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Chris. Uh, I could for sure talk to you for hours, but uh, I, know you're, I know you're a busy man. And for uh, people who are listening, read the book. You're uh, telling a lot about the techniques and uh, and a lot of uh, your experience in uh, never split Thanks. the difference. Uh, yeah, and you know they can come to our website too if they want to learn more about my company. And what is the website address, uh, Chris? It's uh, it's blackswanltd.com. B l a c k s w a n ltd.com and you know we've got plenty of stuff that we actually we give away for free hey so, so, go, uh, so go check it out i have to ask you uh do you do any online courses or uh, what do you do for the normal people not to the big companies yeah well we've got uh right now we've got we've got a course that uh there's they come out via email they're they're lessons you get one a day they're real simple concise lessons and there are 24 of them okay um it's a it's a way and it's also a way to try to get a lot of people say it takes three weeks to to change habits mm. and this is designed to get you working on negotiation for about three weeks and bring your skills up to speed okay and we're actually doing a lot more other stuff now that we're going to be putting out over the next few months and uh i think i'm going to ask you at a later uh, later time again because you're very good at this you're extremely Back. good at delivering the message Thank you. I'd, you know, I'd love to be on. It was a pleasure being on with you. Okay, have a nice day, Chris. Have a good day. Bye-bye.